It's been a difficult four days. On Friday morning, a very close friend and member of our community, uh, Loren, woke up early, baked some scones for her boyfriend, uh, rode her bike to work and was killed by a car, run over, and uh, she was 34. So these kinds of events not only are extremely painful in terms of the attachment that I had to Loren as a, as a friend, somebody that I saw regularly, but also um, the sheer random violence of it has its own additional psychological attendant pains. When we think of death these days, perhaps due to books like How We Die, which present, understandably, the modern contemporary death as something that happens over a period of time, a gradual demise uh, from progressive diseases, aging, Alzheimer's, cancer, the life cut abruptly, violently off mid-sentence. It can feel like a kind of mistake or something that's utterly foreign. Most of us don't visualize that kind of death for ourselves. The idea that we could wake up one morning, uh, brush our teeth, make our breakfast, and then head out for a regular commute, simply have a driver not take long enough to look before they turn, and that will be it. So if she had left for her job 10 seconds earlier or 10 seconds later, she would still be alive. We do not live in a logical universe. By all, If we did, she would have outlived me by 20 years because I'm 20 years older. Now, the Dharma that the Buddha presented warns us again and again and again that this is the nature of life, that we have not only no guarantees, but as the Buddha said in the first noble truth, life is... Uh, a series of interrupted mourning and grieving where there is going to be a progression of old age or sickness, old age, death. Lorraine didn't even get those first two. And there will be separation from people we love. Now, I think the reason why the Buddha presents this is not to try to encourage a kind of pessimism but actually because uh, we are so inclined to not want to look at the truth and not want to accept our fragility and not want to acknowledge that we have absolutely no guarantee. When we recognize how little surety we have, it calls to attention not just how fragile those important essential connections are that make us feel safe, that we take for granted, those people that we rely on. But it also calls to attention the Faustian bargain that we make, putting off our happiness into the future, trading in the belief that, well, one day I'll be able to connect with uh, people I've lost track with, say I'm sorry for things that I haven't yet apologized or forgive those I haven't forgiven so after we experience a loss, when we face the incomprehensible separation from the loved, 
there's two ways we often can wind up resolving. One is a kind of despondency and pessimism, an apathetic indifference to life. I've known many people who transfer their need for connection onto animals and they'll have a dog or a cat which they love dearly and when that animal dies so traumatized they won't then go out and forge a new connection. And they'll wind up in a kind of closed off, armored, bitter lack of being vulnerable because they're so scared of going through a loss again. And I posit that that's not an authentic or meaningful way to live. As painful as these experiences are, there is no option for me to close off my heart to connecting with others or to not want to do the vulnerable work of being empathetic and deeply emotionally connected with people, even though that might entail another heartbreaking loss. Another possibility is that if we don't become pessimistic or apathetic or indifferent, we might, on the other hand, wall ourselves off against the truth of the feeling itself, the grief, through numbing strategies. It's very tempting to try to not feel the feelings that arise when we lose or are separated from someone we love. If we choose those strategies of numbing ourselves, all we're doing is postponing the grief. Fully repressed grief leads to horrible destinations emotionally. The more we repress grief, the more it will arise in ways that are even more painful to hold. So some of the strategies we use to not feel losses in our life are self-numbing through drugs and addictive pleasures, anger. When we go through a loss, we might again and again and again try to blame the people involved. In this case, it would be so easy to sit and externalize the pain as an anger against the driver or the city or something to not feel the loss. Anger is a masking emotion, not all the time, but sometimes. It's something that we feel to not feel the vulnerability of sadness. Sadness is the most vulnerable emotion. Anger gives us the illusion that we can do something about our losses, our abandonments, our grief. And it constantly pushes our attention outside of the body rather than feeling into the body, the chest and the stomach and the throat where we feel the loss and the disconnection. Some of us, after losses, seek the solace of the regressive fantasies. People believe that their loved ones are residing in some heavenly realm waiting for them to be reunited. That wasn't available to me. I grew up with Jewish socialists. You can guess who I voted for today. <laughs> so they, the earliest thing I can remember is being seven years old and patiently telling another weeping child in the playground that God didn't exist and that their grandmother was not waiting for them anywhere. <laughs> And then, of course, there's the over-reliance on self-soothing routines. 
when we face something that's almost incomprehensible, unfathomable, there's a tendency for all of us to seek a self-soothing thing to do, to clean, to cook, to get busy, to try to, to do something so that we don't have to feel the feeling. There's nothing wrong with doing self-soothing routines when they come up naturally, but when we're constantly pulling our attention away from the loss as it's felt in the body, and we're busying ourselves, gardening, doing errands, we are, again, in a repressive engagement with our pain. Once we start letting go of that stage, we'll generally fall into a stage of what's known as preoccupation. When people lose someone they love, we will find ourselves thinking about them, returning to the objects they loved, going to the places they love. That's uh, a transitional stage where we're transferring our attachment for the actual person to memories and objects, and it's the preparation for going through the real grieving process of despondent despair the real loss, which is the real heartbreak itself. There's unfortunately no way for the human mind to emotionally process painful, unprepared loss or separation without grief. Grief is the way that we overwrite the emotional maps, the unconscious maps that we have lingering in the backs of our minds that tell us these people available to us that make us feel safe and that we have people that we can rely on. A great neuropsychologist says that the role of our left hemisphere is to allow us to do the chores and goals and the things we want to accomplish. The right hemisphere is to check unconsciously and make sure that we have a secure base to return to those we can rely on. So we've all had that experience where we've lost someone and yet we still act as if they're there in our lives. A friend of mine who just lost his beloved dog was telling me that while he knew very well that his dog was not with him now, that each morning he found himself when the bowl was empty, picking up the bowl and filling it with water and only then having his heart broken again that his dog wasn't there. So we can know intellectually that someone is not with us anymore, but the emotional pain can go on for many, many months, if not years afterwards, because the process of grief is actually the experience of being without the loved. Each time we turn to call them or expect to hear or expect to connect and then we don't get that call or they're not there at the other end of the line, the experience of grief is, is being in that state of disappointment. It's only that way that the emotional map is changed 
and that we can then go on to live in the world in an authentic way where we make new connections, where we're no longer living in the shadow of a world that's no longer present. Now, if we try to figure it all out, what does it mean before we do this process, we'll get absolutely nowhere. The premature search for meaning is emotionally avoidant. We're trying to live in our heads and come up with a nice thought so that we don't have to feel the pain of absence in the chest, the pain of loss in our stomach, the pain in our throat, the sadness around the eyes. There's no thought or idea or story that makes grief go away. One of the most important stories in the Buddhist canon is of Kisagatami. Kisagatami lived a very, very difficult life. She was a very poor woman. And she, her husband died while she was pregnant, and she had her child, and uh, slaving away just barely enough, making just barely enough to eat, she spent all of her money on her child, her son, and she fully believed that he would grow to essentially give all of her suffering some meaning and that she would have a legacy due to her son. And her son, about the age of four or five, gets bit by a snake and dies. And Kisa Gautami walks around the villages of ancient India with her dead child in her arms, asking for one spiritual teacher after another to bring her child back to life. And they all obviously can't deal with it. So they point her to the Buddha, and she tracks down the Buddha, and she asks the Buddha to bring her child back to life. And the Buddha said, well, before we do anything, I want you to bring me seven mustard seeds from a house that has not known death. Now, in ancient India, there wasn't a lot of wealth, but there was one thing that every household had a lot of, and that was mustard seeds. It's kind of like asking for today's a little bit of salt or pepper. So Kisugatami goes from door to door, and she said, the Buddha said that he will help me if I can get seven mustard seeds. And they say, of course. But then she adds, the stipulation, though, is that it has to be from a house that hasn't known death. Each household, one after another, after another, after another, the person at the door says, well, I'm sorry, but our aunt, our sister, our child, our cousin, our niece, our nephew, brother, they just died. And so as she goes from house to house, what she realizes is that while the pain is unbearable, it was not about her. Her grief was not in any way aimed at her, was not a mistake, but in fact that death and separation are universal experiences that are nothing to be ashamed of. 
or nothing to hide the pain of. The Buddha basically realized that the only way Kisugatami could find any, any solace in her time of grief was to connect with others. And that's the most important thing for us to do when we are presented with the unfathomable. We all have anxieties. Anxieties are at the heart the fear that other people will reject us because of our emotions. <clears throat> anxieties are the fear of the neurotic anxiety in the adult is the fear that my sadness, my grief, my loss, my pain will be something that you won't like and you'll abandon me because I'm sad. And then we also have what's known as decompensation anxieties, which are the fear that if we feel strong emotions, we'll fall apart and not be able to put ourselves back together again. So anxiety is not a fear of anything external, it's the fear of our own emotions. And the only way we can push against anxiety is to connect. Connections with empathetic people who are emotionally tolerant are the only way we'll get the strength to be with the most painful experiences in life. Trying to go through them alone will only increase our anxiety and create, increase our fear of our own emotions. The more we isolate, the more we believe that there's something deeply wrong with us and that it only creates an avoidance cycle. So, if we do grieve enough, what happens is eventually we come through the other side where we're never without the loss, but we integrate that loss into our lives by honoring the experience in all of our choices and the way we live our lives in the future. So how do we do this? Well, before I explain that, I should say a couple of things, two things. One, which is, for me, the greatest fear working with people who are grieving and with my own grief right now, the greatest fear is not that we will fall apart. The greatest risk for me is in keeping ourselves together. Falling apart in a time of loss is actually what we, the mind is supposed to do. We are not supposed to be put together. We are not supposed to look good. We are not supposed to be presentable. We're actually supposed to fall apart when we go through the unbearable. If we try to keep our stuff together, if we try to present in ways and hold off, then what happens is we risk all of the long-term negative outcomes of unattended grief. What are those? Apathy, addiction, somaticization, which is displacing emotional pain onto body, 
hypochondria often happens with people who repress their grief. But the greatest damage of repressing grief is that people grow to fear and cannot in any way cope with death in the future or loss. I've worked with many people who have not attended to their grief, and then when they hear of a friend who's diagnosed or a family member who's diagnosed with cancer, they fall completely apart and cannot connect, and they spiral because they've not allowed themselves to learn how to process and work through and connect with loss. It's a horrible outcome to repress one's grief and to not attend to it. So after we grieve, or during the grief, the long waves of grief that keep on arriving, arising as we connect with places we associate with love, how do we honor and how do we incorporate the experience into the rest of our lives so that we can, we can make choices that honor those we've lost, and also, um, I think, learn from the experience. The first is that we connect in ways that deeply acknowledge the fragility of all of our connections. Now, when we know people who've lost loved ones in extremely painful ways, we tend to say, I've got a lot of hugs waiting for you, or I'll, I'll, you know, I'll give you long hugs. And while that's nice, the real way we need to connect with people that honor the fragility of life and acknowledge it is to be vulnerable, be emotionally true, to not allow ourselves to fall into the social formalities of the sort of habitual greetings and departures, the rushed hellos and goodbyes, to not miss the opportunities to express feelings, to not miss the opportunities to forgive or to ask for forgiveness, to do the difficult, painful, emotional work in our connections. Because, God forbid, I'm glad that I met with Loren so frequently and that we were completely emotionally vulnerable and up-to-date with each other. And I don't feel that there was anything that I wanted to say that I didn't get around to. But that's a horrible, horrible experience. I've worked with so many people who live in the shadow of losses where they, had they known that they only had another day with a beloved, they would have said so much. So it's not about hugs, it's about being authentic, open, honest, expressing those feelings. The second is to drop the solace of constant busyness and constant thinking about the future and constant being at war with the world in our minds and to take time to be with our body 
and to feel those losses in the body. In the body, there's no such thing as permanence or guarantees or, or feelings of being around for imagined, you know, believing that we're going to be around till we're 80 or 90. When you really connect with the body and see the rapid cycling of feelings and pains and the body breathing, it becomes such a strong, undeniable message of just how fragile we are and how much to appreciate just the simple act of existing. And in connecting with the body in such a powerful way, we honor those who would just if only they could be breathing and alive right now. In the body, there's that flow of experience that defines all, defies all the conceptualizing and all the planning, and it just opens us up to something that's so much deeper and truer than all the busyness that distracts us from our emotional lives. Finally, I think the most important is being towards death. The existentialists, when faced with the question, what's the point? Why are we here? If there is no predetermined existence, if there is no... If we're not in some big test where some god, like a Santa Claus up in the cosmos, is watching what we do and deciding whether we get to go to a heaven or a hell realm, if in fact we're, like I tend to believe, thrown into existence without a purpose, without a big plan, and that it's our responsibility to give our life meaning, not to somehow find it. Because finding it means that it's there, we just haven't... It's sort of passing the buck. We give ourselves meaning. And we give ourselves meaning by, in every major choice we make in our life, reflecting on how little time we have, how little guarantees, and how one day there will come a time when we will not have much time left. And we will look back on that choice we made, and will we be grateful for it, or will we think, my God, what a waste. Why did I sacrifice years at this job where I'm not getting any, I'm not benefiting anyone's well-being? Why am I stuck in this unsatisfactory relationship? Why am I uh, dutifully going to the hardware store for orange juices, we say? Lorraine, when she was killed, was riding her bike on the way to a job that she didn't love. In fact, she hated it. And for such a beautiful person, such an amazing person, it's such a crushing thought to me. So, anyway... I hope that there was something in that that was worthwhile. So let's meditate. So...
just come to a really comfortable seated position. And if you'd like, close your eyes or if you prefer, look down at the ground in front of you. And just take a moment just to be with the feelings. Relaxing the face, just softening the muscles in the face and dropping the shoulders as heavily as they can and pulling them back if it feels appropriate to open up the chest. If you have a tendency to slouch or droop your head, just tilt your head back like you're looking at a tall building and uh, just soften down the arms if your hands are in any rigid position see if you can really relax them so that you don't feel any tension especially in the palms softening the belly where we hold so many emotions as well. Create a nice open container for whatever needs to be felt. Softening the buttocks, and the thighs and down the fronts of the legs and even feeling the toes relaxing the feet softening any resistance against the ground and then just opening our awareness to all the sensations that are present right now that we're not adding Present sensations are things like the sounds from the street and the fans above us, the sound of my voice. It's the feeling of contact with the floor, the lights flickering behind the eyelids. It's the sensation of clothes in the body and the feeling of the body breathing, feeling that subtle exchange of contractions and expansions that signal to you whether you're breathing in or out or pausing. There'll be a whole array of events that will not be happening in the present in terms of real 
but things, in fact, that the mind are adding, what the Buddha called sankharas, things like memories, thoughts, fantasies, plans, all the stuff we add to the present moment that are not physical but entirely mental events. So right now, just simply keep the physical in the front of your mind. If a thought or a memory or a plan or an idea comes up, don't push it away. Just let it be in the background, just welcome it, but keep returning your mind to the sensations of the breath, body, contact with the ground, the lights behind the eyelids, the sounds of the room. And if you get trapped by a thought, hooked, caught up, entangled, that's okay. Just release it. Bring your mind back to any of the sensations that are actually occurring. Any form of self-judgment won't help. Any form of self-criticism won't help. It'll only add stress. The only way we develop inner peace is by letting go of that tendency to punish ourselves, criticize ourselves. Just be really gentle, really kind, (coughs) each time feeling good that you've awoken As one of my teachers said, each time we wake up from a plan, a memory, a fantasy, an argument in our heads with someone who's not here, it's like a mini form of awakening. It's what we're aiming for is simply to not live a life entirely captivated by what is not real.
to gently let go of the intention to keep the present time experiences foremost in mind and instead bring your attention to an image of yourself in your mind. It could be an image of how you believe you appear today or sometime in the past when you were vulnerable and needed care and love or any other time in your life when your image has been especially molded into what you conceive yourself to appear like today. And just seeing your image gently repeat with every out-breath or every other out-breath in your mind a phrase wishing yourself well. It could be, I care about my suffering. I care about my sadness. Or may you feel loved Or may I feel safe. You could use the first person or the second person, may you or may I, whatever works. A lovely phrase is holding our image in our mind just Repeating with every or every other outbreath, I love you, keep going. I love you, keep going. While we do this, see if you can settle the eyes behind your eyelids so that they're looking just in a single direction. If your eyes are relaxed behind your eyelids, it's easier to focus on sustaining a practice. May I feel loved. May I feel safe. I care about my sadness. I care about my suffering. If it's difficult to wish yourself well, you can bring to mind someone who loves and accepts you as you are or somebody you know who cares about you and just hold their image. I care about my suffering. I care about my pain. I care about my sadness. May I feel loved, may I feel connected.
So at this point, gently let go of your image or the image of a person who cares about you and bring to mind someone that you've lost. the loved, the beloved. It could be a person or a dog or a cat that you cared about deeply. Just hold the image in your mind of this being, this loved one. If it's hard to visualize how they appear, just say their name. For me, it would be Loren, Loren, Loren. And just opening to whatever feelings arise. In my case, I feel a tightness in my belly and a clutching at the base of my throat. Now gently with each out-breath, adding a very simple phrase, may you be at peace, may all those who love you be at peace, may you be at peace, may all those who love you be at peace, may you be at peace, may all those who love you be at peace. May you be at peace. May all those who love you be at peace. May you be at peace. May all those who love you be at peace. May you be at peace. May all those who love you be at peace.
then if you'd like, but only if you'd like, gently release the image of the love of the person or being that you care for, you cherish, and just let them fade into whatever darkness or flickering lights you see behind the eyelids. And just be in the body again, letting go. So I'm going to ring the bowl and just take your time slowly opening the eyes and to see if you can gently bring the sights of the room back into your awareness, but also still holding whatever needs to be felt. <laughs> 